Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 4. Chapter 18. His Mark. As we were walking down the end of the wharf towards the ship, Queequeg carrying his harpoon, Captain Peleg in his gruff voice loudly hailed us from his wigwam saying he had not suspected my friend was a cannibal, and furthermore announcing that he let no cannibals on board that craft, unless they previously produced their papers. "'What do you mean by that, Captain Peleg?' said I, now jumping on the bulwarks and leaving my comrades standing on the wharf. "'I mean,' he replied, "'he must show his papers!' "'Yes,' said Captain Bildad in his hollow voice, sticking his head from behind Peleg's out of the wigwam. "'He must show that he's converted.' "'Son of darkness,' he added, turning to Queequeg, "'art thou at present in communion with any Christian church?' "'Why,' said I, "'he's a member of the First Congregational Church. "'Here be it said that many tattooed savages "'sailing in Nantucket ships "'at last come to be converted into the churches.' First Congregational Church?' cried Bildad. "'What? That worships in Deacon Deuteronomy Coleman's meeting-house?' And so saying, taking out his spectacles, he rubbed them with his great yellow bandana handkerchief and putting them on very carefully, came out of the wigwam and leaning stiffly over the bulwarks, took a good long look at Queequeg. How long hath he been a member? He then said, turning to me. Not very long, I rather guess, young man. No, said Captain Peleg, and he hasn't been baptized right either, or it would have washed some of that devil's blue off his face. Do tell now, cried Bildad. Is this Philistine a regular member of Deacon Deuteronomy's meeting? I never saw him going there. I pass it every Lord's Day. I don't know anything about Deacon Deuteronomy or his meeting, said I. All I know is that Queequeg here is a born member of the First Congregational Church. He's a deacon himself, Queequeg is. Young man, said Bildad sternly, thou art skylarking with me. Explain thyself, thou young Hittite. What church dost thee mean? Answer me. Finding myself thus hard-pushed, I replied, I mean, sir, the same ancient Catholic church to which you and I and Captain Peleg there and Queequeg here and all of us and every mother's son and soul of us belong, the great and everlasting first congregation of this whole worshipping world. We all belong to that. Only some of us cherish some queer crochets no ways touching the grand belief. In that, we all join hands." "'Splice! Thou meanst splice hands!' cried Peleg, drawing nearer. "'Young man, you'd better ship for a missionary instead of a foremast hand. "'I never heard a better sermon. "'Deacon Deuteronomy, why, Father Mapple himself couldn't beat it, and he's reckoned something.' "'Come aboard, come aboard. Never mind about the papers, I say. "'Tell Quahog there. What's that you call him? Tell Quahog to step along.' 
By the great anchor, what a harpoon he's got there. Looks like good stuff, that, and he handles it about right. I say, Quahog, or whatever your name is, do you ever stand on the head of a whaleboat? Do you ever strike a fish? Without saying a word, Queequeg, in his wild sort of way, jumped upon the bulwarks, from thence into the bows of one of the whaleboats, hanging to the side, and then bracing his left knee and poising his harpoon, cried out in some such way as this, Captain! You see him small drop tar on the water there? You see him? Well, s'pose one whale eye, well then. And taking sharp aim at it, he darted the iron right over old Bildad's broad brim, clean across the ship's decks, and struck the glistening tar spot out of sight. Now, said Queequeg, quietly hauling in the line, suppose he whaley eye, why, dad whale, dead. Quick, Bildad, said Peleg, his partner, who, aghast at the close vicinity of the flying harpoon, had retreated towards the cabin gangway. Quick, I say, you, Bildad, and get the ship's papers. We must have Hedgehog here. I mean, Quahog, in one of our boats. Look ye, Quahog, we'll give ye a ninetieth lay, and that's more than ever was given a harpooner yet out of Nantucket. So down we went into the cabin, and to my great joy, Queequeg was soon enrolled among the same ship's company to which I myself belonged. When all preliminaries were over and Peleg had got everything ready for signing, he turned to me and said, I guess Quahog there don't know how to write, does he? I say, Quahog, blast ye! Dost thou sign thy name or make thy mark? But at this question, Queequeg, who had twice or thrice before taken part in similar ceremonies, looked no ways abashed, but taking the offered pen copied upon the paper, in the proper place, an exact counterpart of a queer round figure which was tattooed upon his arm. So that, though Captain Peleg's obstinate mistake touching his appellative, it stood something like this. Quahog, his X mark. Meanwhile, Captain Bildad sat earnestly and steadfastly eyeing Queequeg, and at last rising solemnly and fumbling in the huge pockets of his broad-skirted drab coat, took out a bundle of tracts and selected one entitled The Latter Day Coming, or No Time to Lose, placed it in Queequeg's hands and then grasped them and the book with both of his, looked earnestly into his eyes and said, Son of darkness, I must do my duty by thee. I am part owner of this ship, and feel concerned for the souls of all its crew. If thou still clingest to thy pagan ways, which I sadly fear, I beseech thee, remain not for a in Belial bondsman. Spurn the idle bell and the hideous dragon. Turn from the wrath to come. Mind thine eye, I say. Oh, goodness gracious, steer clear of the fiery pit. Something of the sea salt yet lingered in old Bildad's language, heterogeneously mixed with scriptural and domestic phrases. Avast there! Avast there, Bildad! Avast now, spoiling our harpooner! cried Peleg. Pious harpooners never make good voyagers! It takes the shark out of them! No harpooner is worth a straw who ain't pretty sharkish! There was young Nat Swain, once the bravest boatheader out of Nantucket and the vineyard. He joined the meeting and never came to good. He got so frightened about his plaguey soul that he shrinked and sheared away from whales for fear of afterclaps in case he got stove and went to Davy Jones. Peleg, Peleg, said Bildad, lifting his eyes and hands, thou thyself as I myself hast seen many a perilous time, thou knowest, Peleg, what is it to have the fear of death? 
How then canst thou prate in this ungodly guise? Thou beliest thine own heart, Peleg, tell me, when this same Pequod here had her three masts overboard in that typhoon on Japan, that same voyage when thou went mate with Captain Ahab, didst thou not think of death and the judgment then? Hear him, hear him now, cried Peleg, marching down across the cabin and thrusting his hands far into his pockets. Hear him, all of ye, think of that, when every moment we thought the ship would sink, death and judgment then? What? With all three masts making such an everlasting thundering against the side and every sea breaking over us fore and aft? Think of death and judgment then? No! No time to think about death then! Life was what Captain Ahab and I was thinking of, and how to save all hands, how to jury-rig masts, how to get into the nearest port, and that's what I was thinking of. Bildad said no more, but buttoning up his coat, stalked on deck, where we followed him. There he stood, very quietly overlooking some sailmakers who were mending a topsail in the waist. Now and then he stooped to pick up a patch, or save an end of tarred twine, which otherwise might have been wasted. Chapter 19 The Prophet Shipmates, have you shipped in that ship? Queequeg and I had just left the Pequod and were sauntering away from the water, for the moment each occupied with his own thoughts. When the above words were put to us by a stranger, who, pausing before us, leveled his massive forefinger at the vessel in question, he was but shabbily apparelled in faded jacket and patched trousers, a rag of a black handkerchief investing his neck. A confluent smallpox had in all directions flowed over his face and left it like a complicated ribbed bed of a torrent, when the rushing waters have been dried up. Have ye shipped in her? he repeated. You mean the ship Pequod, I suppose, said I, trying to gain a little more time for an uninterrupted look at him. Hey, the Pequod, that ship there, he said, drawing back his whole arm and then rapidly shoving it straight out from him with a fixed bayonet of his pointed finger darting full at the object. Yes, said I, we have just signed the articles. Anything down there about your souls? About what? Oh, perhaps you haven't got any, he said quickly. No matter, though. I know many chaps that haven't got any. Good luck to em, and they are all the better off for it. A soul's a sort of fifth wheel on a wagon. What are you jabbering about, shipmate? said I. He's got enough, though, to make up for all deficiencies of that sort in other chaps, abruptly said the stranger, placing a nervous emphasis upon the word he. Queequeg, said I. Let's go. This fellow has broken loose from somewhere. He's talking about something and somebody we don't know. Stop, cried the stranger. You said true. You haven't seen Old Thunder yet, have ye? Who's Old Thunder? said I, again riveted to the insane earnestness of his manner. Captain Ahab. What? The captain of our ship? The Pequod? Hey, among some of us old sailor chaps, he goes by that name. You haven't seen him, have you? No, we haven't. He's sick, they say, but getting better and will be all right before long. All right again before long, <laughs> laughed the stranger with a solemnly derisive sort of laugh. Look ye, when Captain Ahab is all right, then this left arm of mine will be all right, not before. What do you know about him? 
What did they tell ye about him? Say that. They didn't tell much of anything about him, only I've heard that he's a good whale hunter and a good captain to his crew. That's true, that's true, yes, both true enough. But you must jump when he gives an order. Step and growl, growl and go, that's the word with Captain Ahab. But nothing about that thing that happened to him off Cape Horn long ago. When he lay like dead for three days and nights, nothing about that deadly scrimmage with a Spaniard afore the altar and Santa. Heard nothing about that, eh? Nothing about the silver calabash he spat into, and nothing about his losing his leg last voyage according to the prophecy. Didn't you hear a word about them matters and something more, eh? No, I don't think you did. How could ye? Who knows it? Not all Nantucket, I guess, but how's ever mayhap ye've heard tell about the leg and how he lost it, eh? You have heard about that, I dare say. Oh, yes, that everyone knows a most. I mean, they know he's only got one leg and a parmacetti took the other off. My friend, said I, what all this gibberish of yours is about, I don't know. And I don't much care, for it seems to me you must be a little damaged in the head. But if you are speaking of Captain Ahab, of that ship there, the Pequod, then let me tell you that I know all about the loss of his leg. All about it, eh? Sure you do. All. Pretty sure. With finger pointed and eye leveled at the Pequod, the beggar-like stranger stood a moment, as if in a troubled reverie. Then, starting a little, turned and said, You've shipped, have ye? Names down on the papers? Well, well, that signed is signed, and what's to be will be. And then again, perhaps it won't be, after all. Anyhow, it's all fixed and arranged already, and some sailors or other must go with him, I suppose, as well as these as any other men. God pity him! Mornin' to you, shipmates. Mornin' the ineffable heavens bless ye. I'm sorry I stopped ye. Look here, friend, said I. If you have anything important to tell us, out with it. But if you are only trying to bamboozle us, you are mistaken in your game. That's all I have to say. And it's said very well, and I like to hear a chap talk up that way. You are just the man for him, the likes of ye. Mornin' to you, shipmates. Mornin'. Oh, when you get there, tell them I've concluded not to make one of them. Ah, oh, my dear fellow, you can't fool us that way. You can't fool us. It is the easiest thing in the world for a man to look as if he had a great secret in him. Morning to you, shipmates. Morning. Morning it is, said I. Come along, Queequeg. Let's leave this crazy man. But stop. Tell me your name, would you? Elijah. Elijah, thought I, and we walked away, both commenting after each other's fashion upon this ragged old sailor, and agreed that he was nothing but a humbug, trying to be a bugbear. But we had not gone perhaps a hundred yards when chancing to turn a corner and looking back as I did, so who should be seen but Elijah following us, though at a distance? Somehow the sight of him struck me so that I said nothing to Queequeg of his being behind, but passed on with my comrade, anxious to see whether the stranger would turn the same corner that we did. He did, and then it seemed to me that he was dogging us, but with what intent I could not for the life of me imagine. 
This circumstance, coupled with his ambiguous, half-hinting, half-revealing, shrouded sort of talk, now begat in me all kinds of vague wonderments and half-apprehensions, and all connected with the Pequod, and Captain Ahab, and the leg he had lost, and the Cape Horn fit, and the silver calabash, and what Captain Peleg had said of him when I left the ship that day previous, and the predicament of the squaw Tistig, and the voyage we had bound ourselves to sail, and a hundred other shadowy things. I was resolved to satisfy myself whether this ragged Elijah was really dogging us or not, and with that intent crossed the way with Queequeg, and on that side of it retraced our steps. But Elijah passed on, without seeming to notice us. This relieved me. And once more, and finally as it seemed to me, I pronounced him, in my heart, a humbug. Chapter 20. All Astir A day or two passed, and there was great activity aboard the Pequod. Not only were the old sails being mended, but new sails were coming on board, and bolts of canvas and coils of rigging. In short, everything betokened that the ship's preparations were hurrying to a close. Captain Peleg seldom, or never, went ashore, but sat in his wigwam keeping a sharp lookout upon the hands. Bildad did all the purchasing and providing at the stores, and the men employed in the hold and on the rigging were working till long after nightfall. On the day following Queequeg signing the articles, word was given at all the inns where the ship's company were stopping that their chests must be on board before night, for there was no telling how soon the vessel might be sailing. So Queequeg and I got down our traps, resolving, however, to sleep ashore till the last. But it seems that they always give very long notice in these cases, and the ship did not sail for several days. But no wonder, there was a good deal to be done, and there is no telling how many things to be thought of before the Pequod was fully equipped. Everyone knows what a multitude of things, beds, saucepans, knives and forks, shovels and tongs, napkins, nutcrackers and whatnot, are indispensable to the business of housekeeping. Just so with whaling, which necessitates a three years housekeeping upon the wide ocean far from all grocers, costermongers, doctors, bakers and bankers. And though this also holds true of merchant vessels, yet not by any means to the same extent with whalemen. For besides the great length of the whaling voyage, the numerous articles peculiar to the prosecution of the fishery, and the impossibility of replacing them at the remote harbors usually frequented, it must be remembered that of all ships, whaling vessels are the most exposed to accidents of all kinds, and especially to the destruction and loss of the very things upon which the success of the voyage most depends. Hence, the spare boats, spare spars, and spare lines and harpoons, and spare everythings, almost, but a spare captain and a duplicate ship. At the period of our arrival at the island, the heaviest storage of the Pequod had been almost completed, comprising her beef, bread, water, fuel, and iron hoops and staves. But as before hinted, for some time there was a continual fetching and carrying on board of diverse odds and ends of things, both large and small. Chief among those who did this fetching and carrying was Captain Bildad's sister, a lean old lady of a most determined and indefatigable spirit, but withal very kind-hearted, who seemed resolved that if she could help it, nothing should be found wanting in the Pequod after once fairly getting to sea. At one time she would come on board with a jar of pickles for the steward's pantry, another time with a bunch of quills for the chief mate's desk. 
where he kept his log. A third time with a roll of flannel for the small of someone's rheumatic back. Never did any woman better deserve her name, which was Charity. Aunt Charity, everybody called her. And like a sister of Charity did this charitable Aunt Charity bustle about hither and thither, ready to turn her hand and heart to anything that promised to yield safety, comfort, and consolation to all on board, a ship in which her beloved brother Bildad was concerned, and in which she herself owned a score or two of well-saved dollars. But it was startling to see this excellent-hearted Quakeress coming on board as she did the last day, with a long oil ladle in one hand and a still longer whaling lance in the other. Nor was Bildad himself nor Captain Peleg at all backward. As for Bildad, he carried about with him a long list of the articles needed, and at every fresh arrival, down went his mark opposite that article upon the paper. Every once in a while, Peleg came hobbling out of his whalebone den, roaring at the men down the hatchways, roaring up to the riggers at the masthead, and then concluded by roaring back into his wigwam. During these days of preparation, Queequeg and I often visited the craft, and as often I asked about Captain Ahab and how he was and when he was going to come on board the ship. To these questions they would answer that he was getting better and better, and was expected aboard every day. Meantime, the two captains, Peleg and Bildad, could attend to everything necessary to fit the vessel for the voyage. If I had been downright honest with myself, I would have seen very plainly in my heart that I did but half fancy being committed this way to so long a voyage, without once laying my eyes on the man who was to be the absolute dictator of it so soon as the ship sailed out upon the open sea. But when a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he be already involved in the matter, he insensibly strives to cover up his suspicions, even from himself, and much this way it was with me. I said nothing, and tried to think nothing. At last it was given out that some time next day the ship would certainly sail. So, next morning, Queequeg and I took a very early start. Chapter 21 Going Aboard It was nearly six o'clock, but only gray imperfect misty dawn when we drew nigh the wharf. There are some sailors running around there, if I see right said I to Queequeg. It can't be shadows. She's off by sunrise, I guess. Come on. Avast, cried a voice, whose owner at the same time, coming close behind us, laid a hand upon both our shoulders, and then insinuating himself between us, stood stooping forward a little, in the uncertain twilight strangely peering from Queequeg to me. It was Elijah. Going aboard. Hands off, will you? said I. Looky here, said Queequeg, shaking himself. Go away. Ain't going aboard, then? Yes, we are, said I. But what business is that of yours? Do you know, Mr. Elijah, that I consider you a little impertinent? No, 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 I wasn't aware of that, said Elijah slowly and wonderingly, looking from me to Queequeg with the most unaccountable glances. Elijah, said I, you will oblige my friend and me by withdrawing. We are going to the Indian and Pacific Oceans and would prefer not to be detained. Ye be, be ye. Coming back afore breakfast. He's cracked, Queequeg, said I. Come on. Hola! cried stationary Elijah, hailing us when we had removed a few paces. Never mind him, said I. Queequeg, come on. But he stole up to us again, and suddenly clapping his hand on my shoulder, said, Did you see anything looking like men going towards that ship a while ago? 
Struck by this plain matter-of-fact question, I answered, saying, Yes, I thought I did see four or five men, but it was too dim to be sure. Very dim, very dim, said Elijah. Morning to ye. Once more we quitted him, but once more he came softly after us and touching my shoulder again said, See if you can find him now, will ye? Find who? Morning to ye, morning to ye, he rejoined, again moving off. Oh, I was never going to warn ye against... But never mind, never mind. It's all one, all in the family, too. Sharp frost this morning, ain't it? Goodbye to ye. Shan't see ye again very soon, I guess, unless it's before the grand jury. And with these cracked words, he finally departed, leaving me for the moment in no small wonderment at his frantic impudence. At last, stepping on board the Pequod, we found everything in profound quiet. Not a soul moving. The cabin entrance was locked within, the hatches were all on, and lumbered with the coils of rigging. Going forward to the forecastle, we found the slide of the scuttle open. Seeing a light, we went down, and found only an old rigger there, wrapped in a tattered pea-jacket. He was thrown at whole length upon two chests, his face downwards and enclosed in his folded arms. The profoundest slumber slept upon him. "'Those sailors we saw, Queequeg, where can they have gone to?' said I, looking dubiously at the sleeper. But it seemed that, when on the wharf, Queequeg had not at all noticed what I now alluded to. Hence, I would have thought myself to have been optically deceived in that matter were it not for Elijah's otherwise inexplicable question. But I beat the thing down, and again, marking the sleeper, jocularly hinted to Queequeg that perhaps we had best sit up with the body, telling him to establish himself accordingly. He put his hand upon the sleeper's rear as though feeling if it was soft enough, and then, without more ado, sat quietly down there. "'Gracious, Queequeg, don't sit there,' said I. "'Ooh, Perry dude, seat,' said Queequeg. "'My country way won't hurt him face.' "'Face?' said I. "'Call that his face? Very benevolent countenance, then. But how hard he breathes. He's heaving himself. Get off, Queequeg. You are heavy. It's grinding the face of the poor—' "'Get off, Queequeg. Look, he'll twitch you off soon. I wonder he won't wake.' Queequeg removed himself to just beyond the head of the sleeper and lighted his tomahawk pipe. I sat at the fire. We kept the pipe passing over the sleeper from one to the other. Meanwhile, upon questioning him in his broken fashion, Queequeg gave me to understand that, in his land, owing to the absence of settees and sofas of all sorts, the king, chiefs, and great people generally were in the custom of fattening some of the lower orders for Ottomans, and to furnish a house comfortably in that respect. You only had to buy up eight or ten lazy fellows and lay them round on the piers and alcoves. Besides, it was very convenient on an excursion, much better than those garden chairs which are convertible into walking sticks. Upon occasion, a chief calling his attendant and desiring him to make a study of himself under a spreading tree, perhaps in some damp, marshy place. While narrating these things, every time Queequeg received the tomahawk from me, he flourished the hatchet side of it over the sleeper's head. What's that for, Queequeg? Perry easy, kitty, ho, oh, perry easy. He was going on with some wild reminiscences about his tomahawk pipe, which, it seemed, had in its two uses both brained his foes and soothed his soul, when we were directly attracted to the sleeping rigor. The strong vapor now completely filling the contracted hole, it began to tell upon him. He breathed with a sort of muffledness that seemed troubled in the nose, then revolved over once or twice, then sat up and rubbed his eyes. 
Hola, he breathed. Who be ye smokers? Shipped men, answered I. When does she sail? Aye, aye. Ye are going to be in her, be ye? She sails today. The captain came aboard last night. What? Captain Ahab? Who but him indeed? I was going to ask some further questions concerning Ahab when we heard a noise on deck. Hola, Starbucks astir, said the rigger. He's a lively chief mate, that. Good man and a pious, but all alive now. I must turn too. And so saying, he went on deck, and we followed. It was now clear sunrise. Soon the crew came on board in twos and threes. The riggers bestirred themselves, the mates were actively engaged, and several of the shore people were busy in bringing various last things on board. Meanwhile, Captain Ahab remained invisibly enshrined within his cabin. Chapter 22 Merry Christmas At length, towards noon, upon the final dismissal of the ship's riggers, and after the Pequod had been hauled out from the wharf, and after the ever-thoughtful Charity had come off in a whaleboat with her last gift, a nightcap for Stubb, the second mate, her brother-in-law, and a spare Bible for the steward, after all this, the two captains, Peleg and Bildad, issued from the cabin and, turning to the chief mate, Peleg, said, Now, Mr. Starbuck, are you sure everything is right? Captain Ahab is already. Just spoke to him. Nothing more to be got from shore, eh? Well, call all hands, then. Muster them all aft here. Blast them. No need of profane words, however great the hurry, Peleg, said Bildad. But away with thee, friend Starbuck, and do our bidding. How now? Here, upon the very point of starting for the voyage, Captain Peleg and Captain Bildad were going it with a high hand on the quarter-deck, just as if they were to be joint commanders at sea, as well as to all appearances in port. And, as for Captain Ahab, no sign of him was yet to be seen, only, they said, he was in his cabin. But then the idea was that his presence was by no means necessary in getting the ship under way and steering her well out into the sea. Indeed, as that was not at all his proper business, but the pilots, and as he was not yet completely recovered, so they said, therefore Captain Ahab stayed below. And all this seemed natural enough, especially as in the merchant service many captains never show themselves on deck for a considerable time after heaving up the anchor, but remain over the cabin table having a farewell merrymaking with their shore friends before they quit the ship for good with the pilot. But there was not much chance to think over the matter, for Captain Peleg was now all alive. He seemed to do most of the talking and commanding, and not Bildad. Aft here, ye sons of bachelors, he cried as the sailors lingered at the mainmast. Mr. Starbuck, drive him aft! Strike the tent there, was the next order. As I hinted before, this whalebone marquee was never pitched except in port, and on board the Pequod for thirty years the order to strike the tent was well known to be the next thing to heaving up the anchor. Man the capstan! Blood and thunder! Jump! was the next command, and the crew sprang for the handspikes. Now, in getting under way, the station generally occupied by the pilot is the forward part of the ship, and here Bildad, who, with Peleg, be it known, in addition to his port officers, was one of the licensed pilots of the port, he being suspected to have got himself made a pilot in order to save the Nantucket pilot fee to all the ships he was concerned in, for he never piloted any other craft. Bildad, I say, might now have been seen actively engaged in looking over the bows for the approaching anchor, and at intervals singing what seemed a dismal stave of psalmody, to cheer the hands at the windlass, who roared forth some sort of a chorus about the girls in Booble Alley with hearty goodwill. 
Nevertheless, not three days previous, Bildad had told them that no profane songs would be allowed on board the Pequod, particularly in getting underway, and Charity, his sister, had placed a small choice copy of Watts in each seaman's berth. Meantime, overseeing the other part of the ship, Captain Peleg ripped and swore astern in the most frightful manner. I almost thought he would sink the ship before the anchor could be got up, and voluntarily I paused on my handspike and told Queequeg to do the same thinking of the perils we both ran in starting on the voyage with such a devil for a pilot. I was comforting myself, however, with the thought that in pious Bildad might be found some salvation, spite of his 777th lay, when I felt a sudden sharp poke in my rear and turning round was horrified by the apparition of Captain Peleg in the act of withdrawing his leg from my immediate vicinity. That was my first kick. Is that the way they heave in the merchant service? He roared. Spring now, sheephead, spring and break thy backbone. Why don't ye spring, I say? All of ye, spring! Quahog, spring! Thou chap with the red whiskers, spring there! Scotch cap, spring! Thou green pants, spring, I say, all of you! And spring your eyes out! And so saying, he moved along the windlass, here and there using his leg very freely, while imperturbable Bildad kept leading off with his psalmody. Thinks I... Captain Peleg must have been drinking something today. At last the anchor was up, the sails were set, and off we glided. It was a short, cold Christmas, and as the short northern day merged into night, we found ourselves almost broad upon the wintry ocean, whose freezing spray cased us in ice, as in polished armor. The long rows of teeth on the bulwarks glistened in the moonlight, and like the white ivory tusks of some huge elephant, vast curving icicles depended from the bows. Lank Bildad, as pilot, headed the first watch, and ever and anon, as the old craft deep-dived into the green seas and sent the shivering frost all over her, and the cold winds howled, and the cordage rang, his steady notes were heard. Sweet fields beyond the swelling flood Stand dressed in living green. So to the Jews old Canaan stood While Jordan rolled between. Never did those sweet words sound more sweetly to me than then. They were full of hope and fruition. Spite of this frigid winter night in the boisterous Atlantic, Spite of my wet feet and wetter jacket, There was yet in them, seemed to me, Many a pleasant heaven in store and meads and glades so eternally vernal that the grass shot up by the spring, untrodden, unwilted, remains at midsummer. At last we gained an offing, that the two pilots were needed no longer. The stout sailboat that had accompanied us began ranging alongside. It was curious, and not unpleasing, how Peleg and Bildad were affected at this juncture, especially Captain Bildad, for, loath to depart, yet very loath to leave, for good, a ship bound for so long and perilous a voyage beyond both stormy capes, a ship in which some thousands of his hard-earned dollars were invested, a ship in which an old shipmate sailed as captain, a man almost as old as he, once more starting to encounter all the terrors of the pitiless jaw, loath to say goodbye to a thing so every way brimful of every interest to him, poor old Bildad lingered long paced the deck with anxious strides, ran down into the cabin to speak another farewell word there, again came on deck and looked to windward, looked towards the wide, endless waters only bounded by the far-off, unseen eastern continents, looked towards the land, looked aloft, looked right and left, looked everywhere and nowhere, and at last, 
mechanically coiling a rope upon its pin, convulsively grasped stout Peleg by the hand, and, holding up a lantern for a moment, stood gazing heroically in his face, as much to say, Nevertheless, friend Peleg, I can stand it. Yes, I can. As for Peleg himself, he took it more like a philosopher. But for all his philosophy, there was a tear twinkling in his eye when the lantern came too near. And he, too, did not a little run from cabin to deck, now a word below and now a word with Starbuck, the chief mate. But at last he turned to his comrade with a final sort of look about him. Captain Bildad! Come, old shipmate, we must go. Back to the main yard there. Boat ahoy! Stand by to come close alongside now. Careful, careful! Come, Bildad boy, say your last. Luck to ye, Starbuck! Luck to ye, Mr. Stubb! Luck to ye, Mr. Flask! Goodbye and good luck to ye all. And this day, three years, I'll have a hot supper smoking for ye in old Nantucket. Hurry it away. God bless ye and have ye in his holy keeping, men, murmured old Bildad almost incoherently. I hope ye'll have fine weather now, so that Captain Ahab may soon be moving among ye. A pleasant sun is all he needs, and you'll have plenty of them in the tropic voyage ye go. Be careful in the hunt, ye mates. Don't stave the boats needlessly, ye harpooners. Good white cedar plank is raised full three percent within the year. Don't forget your prayers either. Mr. Starbuck, mind that Cooper don't waste the spare staves. Oh, the sail needles are in the green locker. Don't wail it too much, a lord's days, men. But don't miss a fair chance either. That's rejecting heaven's good gifts. Have an eye to the molasses teak, Mr. Stubb. It was a little leaky, I thought. If you touch at the islands, Mr. Flask, beware of fornication. Goodbye, goodbye. Don't keep that cheese too long down in the hold, Mr. Starbuck. It'll spoil. Be careful with the butter. Twenty cents the pound it was. And mind ye if... Come, come, Captain Bildad. Stop palavering. Away! And with that, Peleg hurried him over the side and both dropped into the boat. Ship and boat diverged. The cold, damp night breeze blew between. A screaming gull flew overhead. The two hulls wildly rolled. We gave three heavy-hearted cheers and blindly plunged like fate into the lone Atlantic. Chapter 23 The Lee Shore Some chapters back, one Bulkington was spoken of. A tall, new-landed mariner encountered in New Bedford at the inn. When on that shivering winter's night the Pequod thrust her vindictive bows into the cold, malicious waves, who should I see standing at her helm but Bulkington? I looked with sympathetic awe and fearfulness upon the man, who in midwinter, just landed from a four years' dangerous voyage, could so unrestingly push off again for still another tempestuous term. The land seemed scorching to his feet. Wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. Deep memories yield no epitaphs. This six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington. Let me only say that it fared with him as with the storm-tossed ship that miserably drives along the leeward land. The port would fain give succor. The port is pitiful. The port is safety, comfort, hearthstone, supper, warm blankets, friends, all that's kind to our mortalities. But in that gale, the port the land is the ship's direst jeopardy. She must fly all hospitality. One touch of land, though it be but graze the keel, would make her shudder through and through. 
With all her might she crowds all sail offshore, in so doing fights against the very winds that fain would blow her homeward, seeks all the lashed sea's landlessness again, for refuge's sake forlornly rushing into peril, her only friend, her bitterest foe. Know ye now, Bilkington? Glimpses do ye see of that mortally intolerable truth that all deep, Earnest thinking is but the intrepid effort of the soul to keep the open independence of her sea, while the wildest winds of heaven and earth conspire to cast her on the treacherous, slavish shore. But as in landlessness alone resides the highest truth, shoreless, indefinite as God, so better is it to perish in that howling infinite than be ingloriously dashed upon the lee, even if that were safety. For worm-like, then, oh, who would craven crawl the land? Terrors of the terrible. Is all this agony so vain? Take heart, take heart, O Bilkington. Bear thee grimly, demigod. Up from the spray of thy ocean perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis. Chapter 24 The Advocate as Queequeg and I now fairly embarked on this business of whaling, and as this business of whaling has somehow come to be regarded among landsmen as a rather unpoetical and disreputable pursuit, therefore I am all anxiety to convince ye, ye landsmen, of the injustice hereby done to us hunters of whales. In the first place it may be deemed almost superfluous to establish the fact that among people at large the business of whaling is not accounted on a level with what we call the liberal professions. If a stranger were introduced into any miscellaneous metropolitan society, it would but slightly advance the general opinion of his merits were he presented to the company as a harpooner, say, and if in emulation of the naval officers he should append the initials SWF, sperm whale fishery, to his visiting card, such a procedure would be deemed preeminently presuming and ridiculous. Doubtless, one leading reason why the world declines honoring us whalemen is this. They think that, at best, our vocation amounts to a butchering sort of business, and that when actively engaged therein, we are surrounded by all manner of defilements. Butchers we are, that is true, but butchers also, and butchers of the bloodiest badge, have been all martial commanders whom the world invariably delights to honor. And as for the matter of that alleged uncleanliness of our business, ye shall soon be initiated into certain facts hitherto pretty generally unknown, and which upon the whole will triumphantly plant the sperm whale ship at least among the cleanest things of this tidy earth. But, even granting the change in question to be true, what disordered slippery decks of a whale ship are comparable to the unspeakable carrion of those battlefields from which so many soldiers return to drink in all ladies' plaudits? And if the idea of peril so much enhances the popular conceit of the soldier's profession, let me assure you that many a veteran who has freely marched up to the battery would quickly recoil at the apparition of the sperm whale's vast tail banning into eddies the air over his head. For what are the comprehensible terrors of man compared with the interlinked terrors and wonders of God? But though the world scouts at us whale-hunters, yet does it unwittingly pay us the profoundest homage, yea, and all abounding adoration, for almost all the tapers, lamps, and candles that burn round the globe burn, as before so many shrines, 
to our glory. But look at this matter in other lights, weigh it in all sorts of scales, see what we whalemen are and have been. Why did the Dutch in DeWitt's time have admirals of their whaling fleets? Why did Louis XVI of France at his own personal expense fit out whaling ships from Dunkirk and politely invite to that town some score or two of families from our own island of Nantucket? Why did Britain between the years 1750 and 1788 pay to her whalemen in bounties upwards of one million pounds? And lastly, how comes it that we whalemen of America now outnumber the rest of the banded whalemen in the world, sail a navy of upwards of 700 vessels manned by 18,000 men, yearly consuming four million of dollars, the ship's worth at the time of sailing $20 million, and every year importing into our harbors a well-reaped harvest of $7 million. How comes all this if there be not something puissant in whaling? But this is not the half. Look again. I freely assert that the cosmopolite philosopher cannot, for his life, point out one single peaceful influence which within the last 60 years has operated more potentially upon the whole broad world, taken in one aggregate, than the high and mighty business of whaling. One way and another, it has begotten events so remarkable in themselves and so continuously momentous in their sequential issues that whaling may well be regarded as that Egyptian mother who bore offspring themselves pregnant from her womb. It would be a hopeless, endless task to catalog all these things. Let a handful suffice. For many years past, the whale ship has been the pioneer in ferreting out the remotest and least known parts of the earth. She has explored seas and archipelagos which had no chart, where no Cook or Vancouver had ever sailed. If American and European men of war now peacefully ride in once savage harbors, let them fire salutes to the honor and glory of the whale ship, which originally showed them the way and first interpreted between them and the savages. They may celebrate, as they will, the heroes of exploring expeditions, your cooks, your cruisensterns, but I say that scores of anonymous captains have sailed out of Nantucket that were as great and greater than your cook and your cruisenstern. For in their succorless empty-handedness, they had in the heathenish sharked waters and by the beaches of unrecorded Javelin Islands battled with virgin wonders and terrors that Cook, with all his marines and muskets, would not willingly have dared. All that is made such a flourish of in the old South Sea voyages, those things were but the lifetime commonplaces of our heroic Nantucketers. Often, adventures which Vancouver dedicates three chapters to, these men accounted unworthy of being set down in the ship's common log. Ah, the world! Oh, the world! Until the whale fishery rounded Cape Horn, no commerce but colonial, scarcely any intercourse but colonial, was carried on between Europe and the long line of the opulent Spanish provinces on the Pacific coast. It was the whalemen who first broke through the jealous policy of the Spanish crown, touching those colonies, and, if space permitted, it might have distinctly shown how those whalemen at last eventuated the liberation of Peru, Chile, and Bolivia from the yoke of old Spain, and the establishment of the eternal democracy in those parts. That great America on the other side of the sphere, Australia, was given to the enlightened world by the whalemen after its first blubber-born discovery by a Dutchman. 
All other ships long shunned those shores as pestiferously barbarous, but the whale ship touched there. The whale ship is the true mother of that now mighty colony. Moreover, in the infamy of the first Australian settlement, the emigrants were several times saved from starvation by the benevolent biscuit of the whale ship luckily dropping an anchor in their waters. The unaccounted isles of all Polynesia confess the same truth and do commercial homage to the whale ship that cleared the way for the missionary and the merchant and in many cases carried the primitive missionaries to their first destinations. If that double-bolted land, Japan, is ever to become hospitable, it is the whale ship alone to whom the credit will be due, for already she is on the threshold. But if, in the face of all this, you still declare that whaling has no aesthetically noble associations connected with it, then I am ready to shiver fifty lances with you there, and unhorse you from a split helmet every time. The whale has no famous author, and whaling no famous chronicler, you will say. The whale no famous author, and whaling no famous chronicler? Who wrote the first account of our Leviathan? Who but mighty Job? And who composed the first narrative of a whaling voyage? Who but no less a prince than Alfred the Great, who with his own royal pen took down the words from Othar, the Norwegian whale-hunterer of those times? And who pronounced our glowing eulogy in Parliament? Who but Edmund Burke? True enough, but then whalemen themselves are poor devils. They have no good blood in their veins. No good blood in their veins. They have something better than royal blood there. The grandmother of Benjamin Franklin was Mary Morell. Afterwards, by marriage, Mary Fogler, one of the old settlers of Nantucket, and the ancestress to a long line of Foglers and Harpooners, all kith and kin to noble Benjamin, this day darting the barbed iron from one side of the world to the other. Good again. But then all confess that somehow whaling is not respectable. Whaling not respectable? Whaling is imperial. By old English statutory law, the whale is declared a royal fish. Oh, that's only nominal. The whale himself has never figured in any grand imposing way. The whale never figured in any grand imposing way? In one of the mighty triumphs given to a Roman general upon entering the world's capital, the bones of a whale brought all the way from the Syrian coast were the most conspicuous object in the symboled procession. See subsequent chapters for something more on this whale's head. Grant it, since you cite it, but... Say what you will, there is no real dignity in whaling. No dignity in whaling? The dignity of our calling the very heavens attest. Cetus is a constellation in the south. No more? Di drive down your hat in presence of the Tsar and take it off to Queequeg. No more. I know a man that in his lifetime has taken 350 whales. I account that man more honorable than a great captain of antiquity who boasted of taking as many walled towns. And as for me... If by any possibility there be any as yet undiscovered prime thing in me, if I shall ever deserve any real repute in that small but high-hushed world which I might not unreasonably be ambitious of, if hereafter I shall do anything that upon the whole a man might rather have done than to have left undone, if at my death my executors, or more properly my creditors, find any precious manuscripts in my desk, then here I prospectively ascribe all the honor and the glory to whaling, for a whale ship was my Yale College and my Harvard. Chapter 25. Postscript. In behalf of the dignity of whaling, I would fain advance not but substantiated facts. 
But after embattling his facts, an advocate who should wholly suppress a not unreasonable surmise, which might tell eloquently upon his cause, such an advocate, would he not be blameworthy? It is well known that at the coronation of kings and queens, even modern ones, a certain curious process of seasoning them for their functions is gone through. There is a salt cellar of state, so called, and there may be a caster of state. How they use the salt precisely, who knows? Certain I am, however, that the king's head is solemnly oiled at his coronation, even as a head of salad. Can it be, though, that they anoint it with a view of making its interior run well, as they anoint machinery? Much might be ruminated here concerning the essential dignity of this regal process, because in common life we esteem but meanly and contemptibly a fellow who anoints his hair, and palpably smells of that anointing. In truth, a mature man who uses hair oil, unless medicinally, that man has probably got a quaggy spot in him somewhere. As a general rule, he can't amount to too much in his totality. But the only thing to be considered here is this. What kind of oil is used at coronations? Certainly it cannot be olive oil, nor macassar oil, nor castor oil, nor bear's oil, nor train oil, nor cod liver oil. What then can it possibly be but sperm oil in its unmanufactured, unpolluted state, the sweetest of all oils? Think of that, ye loyal Britons. We whalemen supply your kings and queens with coronation stuff. Chapter 26. Knights and Squires. The chief man of the Pequod was Starbuck, a native of Nantucket and a Quaker by descent. He was a long, earnest man, and though born on an icy coast, seemed well adapted to endure hot latitudes. His flesh being hard as twice-baked biscuit, transported to the Indies, his lifeblood would not spoil like bottled ale. He must have been born in some time of general drought and famine or upon one of those fast days for which his state is famous. Only some thirty arid summers had he seen. Those summers had dried up all his physical superfluousness. But this, his thinness, so to speak, seemed no more the token of wasting anxieties and cares than it seemed the indication of any bodily blight. It was merely the condensation of the man, he was by no means ill-looking, quite the contrary. His pure, tight skin was an excellent fit, and closely wrapped up in it, and embalmed with inner health and strength, like a revivified Egyptian, this Starbuck seemed prepared to endure for long ages to come, and to endure always, as now, for be it polar snow or torrid sun, like a patient chronometer, his interior vitality was warranted to do well in all climates." Looking into his eyes, you seem to see the yet lingering images of those thousandfold perils he had calmly confronted through life. A staid, steadfast man, whose life for the most part was telling pantomime of action, and not a tame chapter of sounds. Yet, for all his hearty sobriety and fortitude, there were certain qualities in him which at times affected and in some cases seemed well nigh to overbalance all the rest. Uncommonly conscientious for a seaman, and endowed with a deep natural reverence, the wild, watery loneliness of his life did therefore strongly incline him to superstition. But that sort of superstition, which in some organizations seems rather to spring somehow from intelligence than from ignorance. 
outward portents and inward presentiments were his, and if at times these things bent the welded iron of his soul, much more did his faraway domestic memories of his young Cape wife and child tend to bend him still more from the original ruggedness of his nature, and open him still further to those latent influences which in some honest-hearted men, restraining the gush of daredevil daring, so often evinced by others in the more perilous vicissitudes of the fishery. I will have no man in my boat, said Starbuck, who is not afraid of a whale. By this he seemed to mean not only that the most reliable and useful courage was that which arises from the fair estimation of the encountered peril, but that an utterly fearless man is a far more dangerous comrade than a coward. Ay, ay, said Stubb, the second mate. Starbuck there is as careful a man as you'll ever find anywhere in this fishery. But we shall ere long see that the word careful precisely means when used by a man like Stubb or almost any other whale hunter. Starbuck was no crusader after perils. In him, courage was not a sentiment, but a thing simply useful to him, and always at hand upon all mortally practical occasions. Besides, he thought, perhaps, that in this business of whaling, courage was one of the great staple outfits of the ship, like her beef and her bread, and not to be foolishly wasted. Wherefore, he had no fancy for lowering for whales after sundown, nor for persisting in fighting a fish that too much persisted in fighting him. For, thought Starbuck, I am here in this critical ocean to kill whales for my living, and not to be killed by them for theirs, and that hundreds of men have been so killed, Starbuck well knew. What doom was his own father's? Where, in the bottomless deeps, could he find the torn limbs of his brother? With memories like these in him, and, moreover, given to a certain superstitiousness, as has been said, the courage of this Starbuck, which could, nevertheless, still flourish, must indeed have been extreme. But it was not in reasonable nature that a man so organized and with such terrible experiences and remembrances as he had, it was not in nature that these things should fail in latently engendering an element in him which, under suitable circumstances, would break out from its confinement and burn all his courage up. And brave as he might be, it was that sort of bravery chiefly visible in some intrepid men which, while generally abiding firm in the conflict with seas or winds or whales or any of the ordinary irrational horrors of the world, yet cannot withstand those more terrific because more spiritual terrors which sometimes menace you from the concentrating brow of an enraged and mighty man. But, were the coming narrative to reveal in any instance the complete abasement of poor Starbuck's fortitude, scarce might I have the heart to write it. For it is a thing most sorrowful, nay, shocking, to expose the fall of valor in the soul. Men may seem detestable as joint stock companies and nations. Knaves, fools, and murderers there may be. Men may have mean and meager faces, but man in the ideal is so noble and so sparkling, such a grand and glowing creature, that over any ignominious blemish in him all his fellows should run to throw their costliest robes. That immaculate manliness we feel within ourselves, so far within us that it remains intact through all the outer character seemed gone, bleeds with keenest anguish at the undraped spectacle of a valor-ruined man. 
nor can piety itself at such a shameful sight completely stifle her upbraidings against the permitting stars. But this august dignity I treat of is not the dignity of kings and robes, but that abounding dignity which has no robed investiture. Thou shalt see it shining in the arm that wields a pick or drives a spike, that democratic dignity which on all hands radiates without end from God himself. The great God absolute, the center and circumference of all democracy, his omnipresence, our divine equality. If, then, to meanest mariners and renegades and castaways, I shall hereafter ascribe high qualities, though dark, weave round them tragic graces. If even the most mournful, perchance the most abased among them all, shall at times lift himself to the exalted mounts, if I shall touch that workman's arm with some ethereal light, if I shall spread a rainbow over his disastrous set of sun, then against all mortal critics bear me out in it, thou just spirit of equality, which has spread one royal mantle of humanity over all my kind. Bear me out in it, thou great democratic god, who didst refuse to swart convict. Bunyan, the pale poetic pearl, thou who didst clothe with doubly hammered leaves of finest gold the stumped and poppered arm of old Cervantes, thou who didst pick up Andrew Jackson from the pebbles, who didst hurl him upon a war horse, who didst thunder him higher than a throne, thou who in all thy mighty earthly marchings ever cullest thy selectest champions from the kingly commons, bear me out in it, O God. Chapter 27. Knights and Squires. Stubb was the second mate. He was a native of Cape Cod, and hence, according to local usage, was called a Cape Cod man. A happy-go-lucky, neither craven nor valiant, taking perils as they came with an indifferent air, and while engaging in the most imminent crisis of the chase, toiling away calm and collected as a journeyman joiner engaged for the year. Good-humored, easy and careless, he presided over his whaleboat as if the most deadly encounter were but a dinner, and his crew all invited guests. He was as particular about the comfortable arrangement of his part of the boat as an old stage driver is about the snugness of his box. When close to a whale, in the very deathlock of the fight, he handled his unpitying lance coolly and offhandedly, as a whistling tinker his hammer. He would hum over his old rigadig tunes while flank and flank with the most exasperated monster. Long usage had, for this stub, converted the jaws of death into an easy chair. What he thought of death itself, there is no telling. Whether he ever thought of it at all might be a question, but if he ever did chance to cast his mind that way after a comfortable dinner, no doubt, like a good sailor, he took it to be a sort of call of the watch to tumble aloft and bestir themselves there after something which he would find out when he obeyed the order, and not sooner. What perhaps with other things made Stubb such an easygoing and unfearing man so cheerfully trudging off with the burden of life in the world full of grave peddlers, all bowed to the ground with their packs, what helped to bring about that almost impious good humor of his? That thing must have been his pipe. For, like his nose, his short, black little pipe was one of the most regular features of his face. You would almost as soon have expected him to turn out of his bunk without his nose as without his pipe. 
He kept a whole row of pipes there, ready loaded, stuck in a rack, within easy reach of his hand, and whenever he turned in, he smoked them all out in succession, lighting one from the other to the end of the chapter, then loaded them again to be in readiness anew. For when Stubb dressed, instead of first putting his legs into his trousers, he put his pipe into his mouth. I say this continual smoking must have been one cause, at least, of his peculiar disposition, for every one knows that this earthly air, whether ashore or afloat, is terribly infected with the nameless mysteries of the numberless mortals who have died exhaling it, and, as in time of the cholera, some people go about with a camphorated handkerchief to their mouths. So, likewise, against all mortal tribulations, Stubb's tobacco smoke might have operated as a sort of disinfecting agent. The third mate was Flask, a native of Tisbury in Martha's Vineyard, a short, stout, ruddy fellow, very pugnacious concerning whales, who somehow seemed to think that the great leviathans had personally and hereditarily affronted him, and therefore it was a sort of point of honor with him to destroy them whenever encountered. So utterly lost was he to all sense of reverence for the many marvels of their majestic bulk and mystic ways, and so dead to anything like an apprehension of any possible danger from encountering them, that in his poor opinion the wondrous whale was but a species of magnified mouse, or at least water rat, requiring only a little circumvention and some small application of time and trouble in order to kill and boil. This ignorant, unconscious fearlessness of his made him a little waggish in the matter of whales. He followed these fish for the fun of it, and a three years' voyage round Cape Horn was only a jolly joke that lasted that length of time. As a carpenter's nails are divided into wrought nails and cut nails, so mankind may be similarly divided. Little Flask was one of the wrought ones, made to clinch tight and last long. They called him King Post on board of the Pequod because, in form, he could be well likened to the short, square timber known by that name in Arctic whalers, and which, by the means of many radiating side timbers inserted into it, serves to brace the ship against the icy concussions of those battering seas. Now these three mates, Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask, were momentous men. They it was who by universal prescription commanded three of the Pequod's boats as headsmen. In that grand order of battle, which Captain Ahab would probably marshal his forces to descend on the whales, these three headsmen were as captains of companies. Or, being armed with their long keen whaling spears, they were as a picked trio of lancers, even as the harpooners were flingers of javelins. And since in this famous fishery each mate, or headsman, like a gothic knight of old, is always accompanied by his boat steerer, or harpooner, who in certain conjectures provides him with a fresh lance, then the former one who had been badly twisted or elbowed in the assault, and moreover, as there generally subsists between the two a close intimacy and friendliness, it is therefore but meet that in this place we set down who the Pequod's harpooners were, and to what headsman each of them belonged. First of all was Queequeg, whom Starbuck, the chief mate, had selected for his squire. But Queequeg is already known. Next was Tashtigo, an unmixed Indian from Gay Head, the most westerly promontory of Martha's Vineyard, where there still exists the last remnant of a village of redmen who has long supplied the neighboring island of Nantucket with many of her most daring harpooners. In the fishery they usually go by the generic name of Gay Headers, 
Tashtigo's long, lean, sable hair, his high cheekbones and black, rounding eyes, for an Indian, oriental in their largeness, but Antarctic in their glittering expression, all this sufficiently proclaimed him an inheritor of the unvitiated blood of those proud warrior hunters, who in quest of the great New England moose had scoured bow in hand the aboriginal forests of the Maine. But no longer snuffing in the trail of the wild beasts of the woodland, Tashtigo now hunted in the wake of the great whales of the sea, the unerring harpoon of the sun fitly replacing the infallible arrow of the sires. To look at the tawny brawn of his lithe, snaky arms, you would almost have credited the superstitions of some of the early Puritans and half believe this wild Indian to be the son of the prince of the powers of the air. Tashtigo was Stubb, the second mate's squire. Third among the harpooners was Dago, a gigantic, coal-black negro savage with a lion-like tread, an ahashverse to behold. Suspended from his ears were two golden hoops so large that the sailors called them ring bolts and would talk of securing the topsail halyards to them. In his youth, Dago had voluntarily shipped on board of a whaler, lying in a lonely bay on his native coast, and never having been anywhere in the world but Africa, Nantucket, and the pagan harbors most frequented by whalemen, and having now led for many years the bold life of the fishery in the ships of owners uncommonly heedful of what manner of men they shipped, Dago retained all his barbaric virtues, and, erect as a giraffe, moved about the decks in all the pomp of six feet five in his socks. There was a corporeal humility in looking at him, and a white man standing before him seemed a white flag come to beg truce of a fortress. Curious to tell, this imperial negro, Ashverse Dago, was the squire of Little Flask, who looked like a chessman beside him. As for the residue of the Pequod's company, be it said that at the present day not one in two of the many thousand men before the mast employed in the American whale fishery are American-born, though pretty nearly all the officers are. Herein it is the same with the American whale fishery as with the American army and military and merchant navies and the engineering forces employed in the construction of the American canals and railroads. The same, I say, because in all these cases the Native American liberally provides the brains, the rest of the world as generously supplying the muscles. No small number of these whaling seamen belong to the Azores, where they outward-bound Nantucket whalers frequently touch to augment their crews from the hardy peasants of those rocky shores. In like manner, the Greenland whalers sailing out of Hull or London put in at the Shetland Islands to receive the full complement of their crew. Upon the passage homewards, they drop them there again. How it is, there is no telling, but islanders seem to make the best whalemen. They were nearly all islanders in the Pequod, isolatos, too. I call such not acknowledging the common continent of men, but each isolato living on a separate continent of his own. Yet now federated along one keel, what a set these isolados were, an Anacarsis Clutes deputation from all the islands of the sea and all the ends of the earth, accompanying old Ahab in the Pequod to lay the world's grievances before that bar from which not very many of them ever come back. Black little Pip, he never did. Oh no, he went before. 
poor Alabama boy on the grim Pequod's forecastle, ye shall ere long see him, beating his tambourine, prelusive of the eternal time, when set for, to the great quarter-deck on high. He was bid strike in with angels, and beat his tambourine in glory, called a coward here, hailed a hero there. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.